0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Now I want to begin uh, today with um, a little story from the ancient texts, the time of the Buddha. And it involves um, a king who was somewhat friendly with the Buddha, who was the same age, and um, the texts that present him as being a little bit self-indulgent, especially with food and things. And um, his name is Pasenadi. And uh, he was talking to the queen, Malika. And he asked uh, the queen, uh, who do you consider most dear? Who do you consider most dear? Now, Perhaps, you know, I kind of interpreted a little bit that a self-indulgent king is kind of expecting the Queen to say, "Well, you dear." <laughs> and, uh, and she says, uh, "But what she, her answer is, "I hold myself most dear." And maybe he raised his eyebrows, and so she asked him, uh, "Who do you hold yourself? Who do you hold most dear?" And he said, uh, I hold myself most dear. So apparently this was uh, noteworthy enough for the king, maybe because he got, didn't get the answer he expected from the queen, that uh, he went to his friend, the Buddha, and, uh, and uh, recounted this exchange that we had. And uh, and, uh, the ki- and the Buddha heard this story and said, well, this is right. Uh, people hold themselves most dear. That's appropriate. So th- that's part of the story. Is not you know it's kind of interesting. And but what's interesting is what the Buddha did next. Uh, he then continued his teaching, uh, and it's preserved in a verse. And uh, the Buddha uh, stated, "Searching all directions with one's awareness." One finds no one dearer than yourself, than oneself. In the same way, others are most dear to themselves. So that's okay, right? So uh, we're similar to everyone. If everyone holds themselves as most dear in some way, that, that, you know, if we see that in ourselves, we can then kind of understand, maybe even empathically, that that's the case for other people, that uh, they hold themselves, they cherish themselves, maybe. And then, um, but here is where the real wonderful emphasis comes that uh, some people say is unique to the Buddha in this ancient context. Uh, Because this particular teaching maybe is not particularly unique and it's not particularly maybe inspiring by itself. Uh, But the last one. So, one should not hurt others if one loves oneself. So we see this emphasis on you know, treating, holding oneself as dear. And so it's, you know, that could be an extreme version be seen as a kind of selfishness to have that kind of you know, focus. And some people react to this kind of teaching as this kind of selfishness, you know, that you shouldn't be that focused that way. And um, I don't think that the Buddha or maybe his people of his time saw it that way But uh, there certainly were, at uh, some of the records that survive, some of the religious traditions of his time put a tremendous emphasis on the self. And the goal of of practice was to realize some kind of fundamental uh, union, communion, realization of the self that was really radically apart from the world we live in. And uh, in fact, we find some of these ancient teachings that preceded the Buddha to have very similar statement to this one here, that uh, one, you know that one should hold oneself dear. But then there's this last line that's so significant, that um, that the Buddha is concerned with how we treat other people. And uh, and he gets the Buddha gets the conclusion that if you love yourself, you shouldn't harm anybody else. Uh, and perhaps a part of the motivation for uh, the, the kind of the the background for this, which is explicit in other teachings, is this sense of uh, recognition that other people have the same feelings as we have. That we don't want to be killed, so probably other people don't want to. We don't want to have things stolen from us, probably other people don't want to. We don't want to have others be the victims of sexual abuse, so. Uh, uh, probably others don't want to be and it goes on and on we don't want to be lied to other people don't want to be lied to and this is a recognition of using oneself and the impact these kinds of ethical behavior has on oneself as a reference point to understand what the impact will be for others would I think support people to I don't want other people to I don't want to experience this for myself this kind of hurt why would I cause this kind of harm to someone else So this kind of taking this teaching about self and turning it around uh, and uh, to emphasize an ethical teaching. And this is something we find over and over again in the Buddha's teachings, that there is a phenomenally strong uh, ethical component to it. It seems like he doesn't tire and keep referring back to something about his teachings that gives an ethical nature, meaning, ethical means, I think it's not always very popular, the topic, but what it means, uh, in shorthand, in the Buddhist context, it means living a life that does not harm others, but, uh, but rather is living a life that benefits others. And, but particularly this thing about not harming others, that's, that he emphasized more than almost anything else. And if you could just imagine that, um, that uh, all the ways that humans harm each other stop, how different it would be to read the newspaper! What a different world it would be! Just that—you um, know—even if people didn't do a lot of benefit for each other, if they just stopped harming each other, what a different world we would be in! And um, and so, uh, uh, um, when the Buddha lays out the path of practice, he begins with an ethical component, which is—he has a lot to do with restraining and causing harm. When in, every step along the way of the path, even up to enlightenment, the, the Buddha keeps referring back to the idea of benefiting others or not causing harm. There's a very sta- famous statement the Buddha made that uh, uh, you know he started teaching at some point, and after some time, there were sixty people who uh, had become enlightened. And when those sixty were enlightened, he uh, he sent them off. You know, don't 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 hang out here. Um, he said, uh, "Go forth out into the world for the welfare and benefit of many out of compassion for the world, go out and be benefit, benefit, benefit them so for him, the you know the consequence of enlightenment was go out and benefit people and support people so um, um, we see." Um, little bit, this, um, or not little bit, a very interesting. If we go look at the um, the Buddha's uh, teaching on loving kindness, there's a very famous text that uh, called uh, the uh, Metta Sutta, the Discourse on Loving Kindness, and um, and that you know title seems about like this is about love, this is about kindness, you know. Uh, friendliness, whatever metta might be translated into English. And, uh, but that's ex- not explicitly what the text is about. It starts off being explicitly about uh, if a person uh, wants to reach a state of peace, a profound state of personal peace, to realize that for oneself, to attain that. Then he lays out what a person should do. So this is how It begins. To reach a state to reach the state of peace those skilled in the good should be capable and upright straightforward and easy to speak to gentle and not proud contented and easily supported living lightly and with few duties wise and with senses calmed not arrogant and without greed for supporters and they should not do the least thing that the wise would criticize. There's nothing in here about being nice in the world. You know, there's nothing about being kind or loving or supportive in the world. Even though, it, you know, the title is the Loving-Kindness Sutta. The explicit beginning is, the uh, titles usually came later, the later editors. So, the, um, uh, apparently the Buddha just spoke and he didn't bother putting titles on <laughs> what he said. Um, but to reach the state of peace. So this is all kind of very personal, personal practice, how you would live your life if you want to live a life that was peaceful and nice. But then it goes on. So uh, to reach the state of peace, those skilled in the good, and then all the things I read, it continues. They should reflect as follows. May all beings be happy and secure May all beings be happy at heart. All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium, or short, tiny or big, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may they all be happy. So, this person who wants to pursue peace should live ethically in a good way. And they should be concerned about the welfare of others. They should actually be wishing, have thoughts of wishing or intentions or aspirations that everyone be happy and secure and safe. Um, and then it goes on and it says, uh, so there's more, this is further what they should reflect or how they should be thinking about when they live in the world. They should be reflecting, let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere. Let no one through anger or aversion wish for others to suffer. Again, the emphasis here has been turned, right? The, if you want to be at peace, it's, the, 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 the direction of the conversation now has changed towards in order to really be at peace, maybe you should be concerned for the welfare of others. That's an important part of it. And he goes on and says more about how to do this in very kind of dramatic terms. As a mother would risk her own life to protect her child, her only child, so toward all living beings should one cultivate a boundless heart. With loving kindness for the whole world should one cultivate a boundless heart, above, below, and all around, without obstruction and without hate and without ill will. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down, as long as one is alert, may one stay with this recollection. This is called a sublime abiding here and now. Whoever is virtuous endowed with vision, not taken by views, and having overcome all greed for sensual pleasures will not be reborn again. So the idea of really discovering this path to peace, and he takes it at the end to kind of one of the ways that the final goal is described. But integrated in this whole thing, a major part of this text, is this emphasis on loving others, being kind, supportive of other others. So generally the word in, in Pali, the ancient language for, for um, uh, loving kindness, uh, is metta, and it's a cognate to the word mitta which is uh, in Pali is the word for friend, Mitra in Sanskrit. And so it's often referred to as a kind of uh, uh, love that's kind of like philia, kind of love of friendship rather than erotic love or some other romantic love or something. Um, But it's a kind of loving kindness or loving friendship or kind friendship that goes on. And... um, And to give you a sense of how much the Buddha emphasized it or the value he put on it, there's this uh, other verse. Just as the light of all the constellations in the sky do not equal one-sixteenth the radiance of the moon, so no matter what the ritual sacrifice, the sacrifice of royal world-conquering kings, does not equal one-sixteenth the value of a heart well-developed in loving-kindness. So this idea of loving-kindness is is being so important. Uh, Monastics, his disciples, who cultivate loving-kindness for as long as a finger snap are called true monastics. They are not without meditative absorption, they cultivate the Buddhist teachings, they are receptive to advice, and do not eat their alms food in, va- in vain. How much more so can this be said of those who frequently practice loving kindness? So, some people who live lay lives, like many of you, uh, uh, maybe, you know, sometimes. <coughs> Think, well, it would be nice if you could be a monastic, you could practice a lot and really dedicate your life to that. But I can't, so, but how could I do something similar and get the same benefits? Well, for a snap of a finger, (laughs) if you have loving kindness for other people, you get a lot of goodness comes from that. And uh, certainly it's good for others to love them, but it's interesting that uh, he then turns it around and focuses back on the individual. Uh, those people have that that degree of loving kindness just that short uh, they are not without meditative absorption They idea of getting concentrated in meditation for oneself is very important in Buddhist practice and here it's you know that something about this loving kindness puts you in that camp somehow that's quite something and they cultivate the Buddhist teachings and then they are receptive to advice are you? <laughs> You probably know people who aren't, <laughs> but there's something about uh, having some degree of friendliness towards people that apparently makes you a little bit open, receptive, you know, to what people say about you. It's, it's kind of nice, I think. And um, and then so elsewhere, the Buddha says, you know, since monastics are have renounced wealth, money, and all that, they're not supposed to have any um, material wealth. Um, so the Buddhists, but the monastics still have lots of wealth. Uh, their wealth is their loving kindness. Isn't that nice to change the wealth from material wealth to uh, what's in your heart? The nice thing about uh, heart wealth, if those of you who are collecting it, and um, is that um, it's portable, <laughs> and uh, and people can't really steal it. You can give it away or, or shut it down yourself, but, but, you know, it's there. And, and uh, um, So what, what is loving-kindness? The, um, there's an ancient uh, description or definition of it. The characteristic of loving-kindness is to pr- promote beneficial conditions for other living beings. So to be interested in creating good conditions for them. Its essential quality is focusing on what is beneficial, focusing on what is helpful. Its manifestation is the removal of malice. So when when uh, loving kindness is strong, the way you know it, apparently, the way it's demonstrated is no malice, no hate. Its proximate cause is seeing the loveliness of beings. Isn't that nice? If you want to love people, if you want to have this kindness or friendliness towards people, first take the time to appreciate them, to value them. And how would, you, how, how would you look? How would you take time to register people in order to appreciate them? I think most people want to be appreciated. I think it's, you know, or feel valued or feel somehow. And to take the time to really appreciate people and then seeing their loveliness then it's easier to have loving-kindness. Um, you know It's one thing to say, you know, loving-kindness is a good thing, and then it's a duty, an obligation, and so you kind of bear down, get serious. That doesn't work so well. But uh, what comes naturally from you if you take the time to look at people, to tune into people, to get time to know them, so that you have some appreciation and valuing of them. And one of the advantages of meditation is to quiet the mind down, quiet the physical system down enough so we're not antsy and rushing off to this thing and that thing. And so when we sit with people, we can just kind of, a little bit, kind of take time to take in the situation rather than having our desires or our fears predominate and we're on to the next thing or pulling away or so caught up in our concerns. But to relax our preoccupation So we can take time to share each other, be with each other. It's phenomenal what can happen. Loving kindness, metta, is called loving kindness because it is loving. It refers to tender love. It is also known as metta because it arises in one's in one's relationship to a friend. So the ancient text clearly connected to the idea of friendship. And how does one abide with one's mind accompanied with loving-kindness, extending outward in one direction? Just as one would feel friendliness on seeing a dearly beloved friend, so does one extend loving-kindness to all creatures. So then... um, I want to tell you an ancient story kind of a fable I think of a fable and uh, that metta sutta that I read to you earlier uh, about uh, you know how uh, if you want to reach or attain the state of peace you know have kind supportive well wishing for all beings Uh, there's a story of how the Buddha first gave this and uh And I think that uh, one way of looking at this story, this fable, is once again to see this integration or n- non separation of a personal path path of practice and being concerned for the welfare of others that the two shouldn't be kept separate and the story goes that uh, the Buddha was in town and one of his places where he lived with his monastics. And it was time for them to go off for the three months rain retreat. For monastics, every year for three months, they go off someplace to just be in, uh, still, not to be what, moving around uh, during the ancient, when the monsoon season was in ancient India, uh, when it was kind of hard to walk around anyway. And, uh, and they would uh, just sit in, pra- sit in one place and practice. And they weren't supposed to leave that place during the th- those three months. Kind of like a three-month retreat. So his monastics kind of headed off from town to find a place for their three-month retreat. And one group of them uh, went up uh, into the foothills of the Himalayas and they found this spot, which... Um, 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 in an outlying district, they came to a cool, dense, green forest grove. In it, they found a stretch of ground covered by white sand that looked like a net of pearls or a silver sheet. Nearby was a clean spring with cool water. Within sight was a great mountain forming part of the Himalayan mountain range. Awe inspiring, the mountain sparkled like blue crystal in the sun. The monastics spent a night here and in the morning found a town not far away where they could go for alms. Since monks and nuns seldom visit outlying districts, the townspeople were quite joyful to see the monastics and happily offered them food. After the group had eaten, the townspeople requested they spend their rains retreat in the nearby grove. When the mas- monastics, monastics agreed, everyone in town quickly built little huts, one for each of the monks. The next day, the monks re-entered the grove and wholeheartedly began their retreat. With well-established mindfulness, they each sat at the foot of a tree to meditate. Isn't that idyllic? <laughs> so we should all, you know, find a place like that under a tree that we can meditate. But there was a problem. <laughs> so, however, the tree spirits, the, th- the tree devas that lived in those trees were dismayed by the dedication of the virtuous monks. They came down from their tree homes and from a distance wandered back and forth with their children. It was like a king and his entourage commandeering a town, displacing the residents. Those townspeople stand at a distance asking themselves, When are they going away? In the same way, those devas wondered, When are those monks going away? Then the devas realized that the monks were going to stay put for the entire three-month period of the rains retreat. Since they did not think it was possible to live with their children away from their homes for so long, they decided to try to fri- frighten the monks away. So in the middle of the night, the devas created terrific appar- apparitions that stood in front of each monk making horrible sounds. The monks shook with fear, became pale and sickly, and could no longer keep their minds concentrated. As the devas kept up their fear attacks, the monks also lost their mindfulness. Then the devas assailed the monks with awful stench. The smell seemed to suffocate the monks' brains. Each monk felt quite oppressed but did not tell the other monks what was happening during the night. This continued for several nights until the senior monk asked them, Friends, when we entered this grove, your skin color was pure and bright and your faculties were clear, but now you all seemed withered up and pale and sickly. What's wrong? <laughs> and then the other monks explained to him what horrible fear they were experiencing at night. And they said, and the senior monk said, this place does not suit us. Let's go to the Buddha and ask if we can go to a, a more suitable location. That's reasonable, right? After all, they displaced the devas. I mean, it wasn't—it was the home of the devas, right? They shouldn't just walk in and take over. And um, and so, but anyway, they were so frightened. Let's find a, a different place. So they went back to town to the Buddha, and explained what had happened. And he, the Buddha, in his great vision, looked around the world, and said, "Well, it turns out there's no other place in the world that's better for you all <laughs> than that place." You should go back there. Um, However, if you want to be free from fear of devas, then learn the following as a protection. It will be be both a protection and a meditation practice for you. Then the Buddha expounded the discourse on loving-kindness. The monks then returned to their grove of trees and began reciting the discourse on loving-kindness and practicing loving-kindness meditation. As a result, the devas thought, these monks wish us well and seek our good. Filled with happiness, the devas began to support the monks and did so for the remainder of their retreat. The devas kept the grove swept clean, prepared warm water for the monks, provided them with medical treatment, and arranged for their protection. Practicing loving-kindness, the monks became established in insight, and then all of them attained the highest enlightenment, arhatship, during the, that very retreat. So it's a nice fable, and, uh, you know, it's a little story. But what I want to emphasize in this story is this integration of these two. The monks went off into to practice to get enlightened themselves, which in some ways is an individualistic pursuit and um, and they were all all the conditions were there for them to be able to do it, except one thing more was needed, which they didn't realize. They needed to uh, have hearts of loving kindness for the location for the spirits that were there, for the unseen world, maybe for the seen world as well. And um, and so what they did is they practiced this loving kindness. They practiced having this heart of goodwill for others for the three months. and According to this text. That was the practice that brought them their individual liberation. So, individual, other, caring for others, concerned for others, loving others, loving oneself, caring for oneself, these are deeply intertwined in the Buddhist teachings. It's easy enough to pull, kind of cherry pick and pull out of these texts a certain emphasis. And I think not a few of the people here in the West, maybe myself included, um, have uh, have gone like we went to Burma to practice many of us and we went to um, monasteries that were meditation centers and so they mostly taught us meditation the individualistic side we didn't get a lot of the social teachings and then some of us came back and established centers here in the west and some of the meditation centers and since they're medit- retreat centers they, you know again the emphasis is meditation so Sometimes that was the emphasis, was keep emphasizing a particular kind of subset of the teaching. But if you read the suttas as a whole, what you see is a tremendous integration of how we live in our social life as part of what the Buddha had to teach. That we would live ethically, we'd be very concerned about not causing harm in the world, we would cultivate loving kindness, goodwill, to care for others, to have appreciation for others, to value others. And not only to do it as, you know, just as a good thing, but also do it for our own practice. We, we benefit from doing it. This kind of mutuality that, um, of um, concern for other benefits ourselves. Benefiting ourselves concerns others. Um, the two go, you know, two go hand in hand. There's not, they're not so separate from each other. I think that uh, in some of the currents of Western thought, there's a very sharp divide between altruism and selfishness. And there's some very, you know, the ideal way is supposed to be altruistic in some circles in the West. And anything that you do that's not that is selfish. One of the ways I saw it when I first started practicing Buddhism when I was in my early 20s. So things maybe have changed. I haven't heard this for a long time now. But it was common back then For non-Buddhists, when they learned that their children or family members were practicing Buddhist meditation, would criticize them for being selfish. You know, maybe they meditated an hour a day, and the people who are criticizing them for being selfish were watching TV three hours a day. (laughs) There's something about meditation being maybe religious, that expectation, if you're doing something religious, you're supposed to be altruistic. But if you're not doing something religious, then it doesn't really, you know, the fact that it's TV, three hours, six hours a day, you know, that's not in the same domain. So you wouldn't criticize someone for doing that, being selfish. So it was a little bit strange back then, I thought. And um, but this strong divide between altruism and being selfish that I think exists in some corners of the West, it doesn't seem to exist in ancient India. It's, it's really, there's often in Buddhism and other religions of that time a sense of the mutuality of these. That if you benefit yourself, you're a benefit for the world. If you benefit others, you benefit yourself as well. And in the Buddha's teaching, and, um, there is this uh, wonderful little teaching that, um, if I can find it in all these papers... The, and I'll kind of maybe end with this um, there's also a fairly well-known little teaching of the acrobats and uh, there were these two acrobats uh, the the master acrobat and the apprentice and they would do acrobatics on their own bodies like one would climb on the other and do all kinds of things do handstands and all kinds of wonderful acrobatics and um, and so they were going to do a show and uh, the master apprentice, master uh, acrobat said to the apprentice, uh, you watch over me and I'll watch over you and that way we'll be safe. That seems reasonable enough. You know, it's kind of dangerous to be up there. And uh, the apprentice says, no, you watch over yourself and I'll watch over myself and that way we'll be safe. So this was, you know, with a disagreement like that, they went to the Buddha, <laughs> <laughs> and the Buddha agreed with the apprentice. And I think it's kind of like this idea of, uh, you know, in your airplane, you should put uh, the uh, air mask on yourself first, and then you can help others. Then the Buddha said, protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. And here we see this mutuality. These are not s- sharply divided, these two, they, all come, they come together. And how does one in protecting oneself protect others? By repeated and frequent practice of mindfulness. So you, pre- you protect yourself by practicing mindfulness. You certainly protect yourself from yourself. Who, who harms you the most these days? <laughs> Not a few people in our world are harming themselves with their attachments and fear and criticism and all kinds of things that go on. So... Uh, So one protects oneself oneself by practicing mindfulness. But remember, the Buddha said in doing so, you protect others. And how does one in protecting others protect oneself? By patience and forbearance, by a non-violent and harmless life, by loving kindness and compassion. So if you protect others with these attitudes, with these motivations, you also protect yourself. So this mutuality, these things go together. So the impression I have these days is that the, one of the great great contributions of the Buddha was to offer a spiritual practice, a path to liberation, um, that uh, where the individual and the social were deeply integrated and connected. You can't really separate them out. And you want to really kind of be concerned with both. So you want, or you want to develop the heart that is open and sensitive and loving or caring for both and for all in a sense equally caring for oneself as we would be caring for someone else that we are worthy and valuable people ourselves and we are worthy of of our own love our own care our own trying to trying to help ourselves kind of for the best in us to come out to become free and peaceful and and to do the same thing for the people around us to not shut down, not close down, not uh, have blinders on, not live in our own particular insulated world without paying attention to the world around us, but somehow to understand that maybe all of us in this world, every single human being and maybe all living life, are really in this together. And, um, and uh, we can't really separate these two out and, so then I'll end with this quote that I saw I read last night, that I really liked. Maybe I can apply it to what I'm saying. It was something like uh, you know we had the history here in really recent t- times in the United States of um, uh, banks failing, and then. Um, the government goes and saves them. But the biggest bank we have, the bank that we are all relying on and withdrawing from all the time and at the risk of going bankrupt now, is the earth itself. And uh, who's going to help that out of bankruptcy? You know, when all the resources are used up, and, you know, who do we turn to to say, well, you know, we need, we need, a, we need a new loan. The um, So this idea of, you know, loving the world, you know, really opening up and including all and not keeping it so separate, I think it's, uh, you know, us and them, or but you know, really being encompassing it all as part of our own welfare, I think is more necessary now in this world than ever before. So I certainly hope that uh, you will... Consider how to do the best for yourself and thrive in some deep inner way and that you'll discover that if you thrive inwardly from your heart out <clears throat> that you, uh, you'll see it's so obvious that it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a the it's obvious thing <clears throat> is also to care for the world around you. May our lives be lives of deep caring for self and others and all beings. Thank you.